Friends, we live in a world that glorifies self-sufficiency. And it, it is a world that is perishing. A world filled with people who are laboring for things that will ultimately not satisfy. And it is to this world that you and I have the privilege of proclaiming the gospel of the grace of God. That good news of Jesus Christ that calls all people to turn away from self-reliance and to put our trust in the God who raises the dead, the God for whom we were made. Friends, our lives must be lived in accordance with this gospel that we proclaim. And in order to do that, to live lives of faithfulness, we must continue to rely on the God of the gospel who is able to sustain and comfort and establish us for every good work through his all-sufficient word. And this is why at Grace Church, it is the, the preaching of God's word that occupies most of our time. It's the preaching of God's word that is central to our public worship. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me now in your copy of God's word to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 12 to 22. Now, after describing how God comforted him in his affliction and exhorting the Corinthians to pray for his deliverance, Paul now proceeds to address some of the criticisms he had heard from Corinth concerning himself. So look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. This is the word of the Lord. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us 
and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Let's pray together. Father, help us now to live godly lives in keeping with the gospel that we proclaim. May your faithfulness keep us faithful both in word and deed so that you would be glorified in and through your church. Hold fast to us, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the most common ways in which Christians can experience grief is when the people you love and serve in the church misjudge you. Has that ever happened to you? Instead of taking the trouble of having a clarifying conversation with you, which is the effort that Christian love ought to take, they begin to impugn or criticize your motives and draw conclusions about you. Why, it even happened to King David once. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, we are told that David once had a friend named Nahash, who was the king of Ammon. And they were loyal to each other, we are told. But one day, his friend died. Nahash died. And Nahash's son, Hanun, became king. David, of course, decided that he would show kindness to Hanun, just as his father, Nahash, had shown to David. And so David, out of great concern for Hanun, sent by his servants to console or comfort Hanun. That was his gracious motive. That was his intention. However, things took a turn for the worse. Some of Hanun's buddies said to him, Oh, do you think because David has sent his comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search out the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? That's what he wants. They misjudged his motives. They not only misjudged his motives, but they also convinced Hanun to humiliate David's men just to send a message. Here's what we think of your kindness, David. 2 Samuel 10, verse 4. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each of them and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. He wanted to humiliate them. Now Paul was in a very similar situation with the Corinthians. You see, certain Jewish men who claimed to be apostles had infiltrated the church and turned their hearts against Paul. They said that Paul was not worthy to be called an apostle because his life was marked by suffering and shame. And they began to question his, his motives. They began to question even his message. Now, in an earlier letter, in 1 Corinthians, Paul had informed the congregation about his travel plans. And his plan was to stay in Ephesus till Pentecost, and then, Lord willing, visit them later in the year. But then Paul's plans changed because of the bad situation in Corinth. And so he made an emergency visit to Corinth, which turned out to be very painful for him and costly. During that visit, one of the members who sided with these false apostles openly opposed Paul and, and grievously sinned against him 
while the rest of the congregation stood by and did nothing. And so as a result of this, Paul left Corinth feeling humiliated and greatly grieved. Now when the time came for him to visit the Corinthians as per his original plan, Paul decided not to. Instead, with great anguish and tears, he wrote the Corinthians a letter calling them to, to repent and be reconciled to him. In, in chapter 1, verse 23, you can look at the verse, he tells us the reason for the change. He says that it was for their benefit. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. See, after several months had passed by, Titus, who delivered that letter, came back to Paul with good news that many members in the congregation, after receiving Paul's letter, had repented. And they had once again embraced Paul as their apostle. Furthermore, they had also disciplined the man who had opposed Paul. And so, in response to what he had heard from Titus, Paul wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul addresses many of those criticisms he was hearing from both those false apostles and those unrepentant members. Now, keep in mind that these so-called apostles were looking for ways to discredit Paul. And the fact that he promised to visit and did not visit when he said he would visit gave them plenty of ammunition to impugn his motives. Oh, this man's not a spiritual man, they said. Now, Paul, in humility, subjected all his plans, all his travel plans, to the sovereignty of God. He says it very clearly. If you just look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7, he says it very clearly, if the Lord permits, he will come. But these false apostles saw this as the perfect opportunity to undermine Paul's character. Uh, if he was really God's apostle, they said, he would be guided by the Holy Spirit in his decision-making, wouldn't he? Oh, he's so fickle, this Paul. He says one thing, then he does something else. He makes plans according to the flesh. He's not walking by the Spirit. He's a double-minded man. You can't trust him. He's not sincere. He's not reliable. He's not trustworthy. So in this section, beginning from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to chapter 2, verse 17, Paul speaks particularly to this charge. And the charge is this. He's not sincere. That's the charge. They were questioning the purity of his motives. And Paul's response is, I am sincere and will always be sincere towards you because he is a true apostle commissioned by God to speak the words of Christ. As an apostle, Paul's words are God's words and therefore they must believe him and be reconciled to him because the church is founded on the apostolic word. Look at chapter 2 verse 17. Paul says, for we, the apostles, the true ones, are not like so many, so this is a jab against the false apostles, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. So these men, they're the ones with impure motives. We're not in this line of work for personal gain, says Paul. No, we are not 
peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity. There it is, that word again. As men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So who Paul is, is hugely significant in answering the Corinthians. Despite all that they had done to Paul, Paul intends the words of this letter to build up the Corinthians. Despite the pain they had caused him out of his affliction and the comfort that he had received from God, he now turns around and he comforts the Corinthians. And in this passage, as he responds to these charges, I want you to see his confidence in God. I want you to see his confidence in God because that's what shines forth from this text. And friends, isn't that what we should expect to learn from affliction? To not rely on ourselves, but to have confidence in God, to boast in Him. After placing his hope on God, in verse 11, Paul asks the Corinthians to pray for him. See that in verse 11. So that when the Lord comforts him, they can offer up thanksgiving to God. And this tells us that whatever the cause of Paul's affliction was in Asia, it was ongoing. And so he says, pray for me, pray for me. And one day you'll get a chance to give thanks to God when he answers that prayer. But, he also, but this also demonstrates, it also tells us, shows us, that given what they had heard, what he had heard about their repentance from Titus, Paul was confident about them. He was confident that they would believe his words as God's grace to them. And it is this confidence that we see in this passage. So firstly, notice his confidence because of God's grace in his life and in theirs. So point number one, Paul's confidence in God's grace. Paul's confidence in God's grace. Look at verse 12. For our boast is this. That word boast can also be translated as confidence. This word appears several times in this letter, boasting. And boasting can either be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on where your confidence lies. It depends on the content of your boasting. And Paul says, our boast, his apostolic boast, is this, the testimony or the witness of our conscience. Now, what's that? The conscience is that part of you, so you can think of it as something that goes on in your mind. So it's not the voice of God in you. That's not what a conscience is. No, it's just you. It's just you. The conscience is a human faculty. It's that mental sense or cognitive process by which you either approve or disapprove of your actions or the actions of others. I'll say that again. It's a human faculty. It's that mental sense or cognitive process thinking by which you either approve or disapprove of your actions or the actions of others. Now, according to scripture, the consciences of all men apart from Christ are evil. That's Hebrews 10 verse 22. But when we are born again, when we are made alive in Christ, our consciences are cleansed and they are made pure and good. That's 1 Peter 3, 21. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that our consciences 
are ultimately and exhaustively authoritative on all matters. No, our consciences can be right or wrong. Our consciences can be weak or strong, depending on the standards that inform our consciences, on the standards by which we use to approve or disapprove our actions. Now, our aim as Christians should always be to put on the mind of Christ, to put on the mind of Christ, to make sure that it is scripture that informs our consciences. Or to borrow a phrase from Martin Luther, your conscience ought to be captive to the word of God. Only a good conscience or a biblically informed conscience can be a loving conscience. This is the goal of all Christian teaching. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge, our teaching, our doctrine, our Bible ministry, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now Paul says, I've heard these charges and I've assessed them. And here's my report. Here's my assessment. My conscience bears witness. What does it say? That we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Now that word simplicity can also be translated as holiness. Holiness, your translation, your Bible may have a footnote that says that. Paul is saying we always did what was right and true. We did not lack integrity. I think that's a good way to talk about holiness. Beloved, holiness should not be thought of as a strict, suffocating, complex, joy-killing way of life. Holiness, get this, is simplicity. Is simplicity. It's Christ-likeness. It's loving Jesus so much that you want to think like him and act like him. Brothers, the Christian life is simple. It's trusting and obeying Jesus. Listen, sin is complicated. Sin is complicated. Holiness is not. Sometimes we make it complicated because we start to think of all the consequences of our obedience. What will happen if I do obey this or obey that? What's going to happen? What will people think? What will be the consequences? That's not our call. We ought to leave that in the hands of God. No, the pursuit of holiness is a simple one. And it boils down to what Jesus calls every disciple to do. Follow me, he says. Paul says that he not only behaved with integrity, but also with godly sincerity. You know, this sincerity was of God. That's what he means by godly sincerity. The word, this word that is translated as sincerity refers to the purity of Paul's motives. The purity of his motives. He wasn't double-minded. He wasn't lying. He wasn't cooking up some devious plan when he said he wanted to come. He genuinely wanted to come. Now here's how we know that this boasting is not human boasting, but boasting in God. Notice what Paul says. 
This is the way the apostle behaved, not just in the world, this world that is opposed to the gospel. This is the way he behaved supremely in an exceptional manner toward the Corinthians. You know, Paul could have confidence in the witness of his conscience. He could say, I did you no wrong because all my behavior, all my conduct was by the grace of God. It was by the grace of God and not by earthly wisdom. Did you see that in the text? That's why this is a godly confidence, even though he's talking about the witness of his human conscience. It was by the grace of God. Paul has a biblically informed conscience, doesn't he? Everything I did was by the grace of God, the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, in contrasting earthly wisdom to God's grace, that should sound familiar to your ears. Paul is once again picking up his teaching from 1 Corinthians, where he compares the word of the cross, the gospel of Christ and him crucified, to worldly wisdom that chases after power and signs and impressive speech. Friends, simplicity and purity of motives are the fruit of God's grace in the life of a Christian. They are the fruit of God's grace in the life of a Christian. Friends, is such fruit evident in your life since you claim to live by the grace of God? Can others see it in you? Can you see it in yourself? Does your conscience bear witness to it? See, Paul can say, my conscience is clean because I know I had no evil motives. By the grace of God, I was making plans with every intention to serve you, to come to you, to minister to you. It was not, it was not just my conduct, but my very words to you, even the words of this letter that are reliable, he says. Look at the next verse, verse 13. For, so here's the reason why I can say with confidence that it was all by grace. For, we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. There's no discrepancy, says Paul. There's no discrepancy between what I say to you in person and what I write to you. It's all by the grace of God. What you read and recognize, what you see and understand is what it is. There's no hidden agenda. You don't have to read between the lines, as it were. It's straightforward and holy and true and sincere. Why? Because such is the grace of God. Such is the grace of God. And I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us. Now that phrase, I hope that you will fully understand the, the phrase fully, hiostilos, refers to the end of time. Now that's another way of saying, I hope that in the end, when Jesus comes back, that's where he's heading. Look at the verse. On the day of our Lord Jesus. I hope that in the end, you will completely get this, just as you got it in part. You know, what Paul here is saying is that he hopes that they will believe his words as the very words of the grace of God and understand 
why he changed his plans. He is hopeful because they partially understood him, referring to their change of heart when they received his severe letter. Many of them repented. Paul says, your partial understanding makes me hopeful that through these words you will dismiss these false charges and be reconciled to me. Not only that, but Paul also hopes that when all is said and done, having understood him, they too will be confident in their apostle. Look at the text. I hope that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. You see, Paul is not only confident in the grace of God in his own life because of his actions and words, but he's also confident that through his words, these words of grace, these apostolic words, the Corinthians will be convinced and reconciled to him. And eventually on that great day when Jesus returns, they too will rejoice in what God did in them and for them and through their apostle, the apostle Paul. And he too will boast in what God did through him and in them. Now, here's what we need to learn from this. Friends, this is what the Lord Jesus wants for us. These words are for our upbuilding, for our spiritual growth. And we ought to make sure that we're putting our confidence in the right place. You know, that's one of the reasons why afflictions are good for us. So that we might learn to put our confidence in the right place. So the next time you are misjudged or misunderstood, stop and ask yourself before you react. Stop and ask yourself, what is the Lord teaching me through this? Beloved, these words of God's grace should so inform and shape our consciences so that we will be careful to examine our motives when we interact and when we serve one another. For all our words and actions to be God-glorifying, we ought to ask ourselves regularly, am I doing this in faith? Am I doing it in dependence on the gospel of grace that saved me? Am I doing it in love? Am I speaking and behaving according to earthly wisdom, according to the social and cultural conventions of my day? Or am I acting as a Christian, am I acting in accordance with the gospel of grace? Am I seeking to please Christ or am I seeking to please man? Brothers and sisters, examine your motives so that like Paul, you too can have a clear conscience. And a clear conscience is such a blessing to have. It's such a blessing to have in the Christian life and in Christian ministry. Oh, I pray that the Lord will, will give you that as you serve one another in love, as you labor to build one another up, as you comfort one another, strive for simplicity and godly sincerity. Now, does this mean we'll always get it right? No, no, we won't. But you can be sure of this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, you can be sure of this, that a day is coming when the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That day is coming. We can have hope that when Christ returns, not only will we fully, fully understand things, not only will all our motives be revealed, 
but we will be glorified. We will be fully reconciled to one another. And we will rejoice in what God has accomplished in each other's lives. That's the joy that we can look forward to. In fact, this future day of boasting in God's grace should stir our hearts right now to think carefully that if we have something against anyone, that we ought to go to our brothers or sisters, perhaps even your spouse, and pursue reconciliation by the power of God's grace. Friends, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the one who comforts us in all our affliction, can cleanse our hearts and our consciences so that we can serve one another in simplicity and godly sincerity and praise Him when we do. So, assess yourselves. Assess yourselves to see if you're walking in grace, in simplicity and godly sincerity. Think about all your relationships. Think about this. Have you as a member of this congregation ever misjudged the motives of your pastors? Like the Corinthians misjudged Paul. Are you glad and thankful to the Lord for what God is accomplishing through these men, your pastors? This is what Paul prayed for, for the Corinthians. This is what the word wants for us as believers, as a church. See, Paul was confident in the grace of God, even in the midst of conflict. And so should we. But he was also confident in the faithfulness of God. And that brings us to our second point. The reason Paul first told them of his plans was because he was confident of the work of God's grace in his life and theirs. And the reason his change of plans did not mean that he was untrustworthy or unreliable is because the God he served, whose purposes he served, is faithful and reliable. So point number two, look at Paul's confidence in God's faithfulness. Paul's confidence in God's faithfulness. Listen carefully to how he lays out his argument. Look at verse 15. Because I was sure of this. Okay? Sure of what? Sure that the grace of God was at work in them. Because I was sure of this, I wanted, I desired to come to you first. He's referring to his original plan, which he's about to give us in the next verse. But here he gives us the purpose of that visit. So that you might have a second experience of grace. Now, what does he mean by that? The second experience of grace is a reference to his ministry among them as an apostle through his preaching and teaching. So that they would experience the grace of God through his word ministry in person. You know, the first time he was at Corinth was when he planted the church. The second time was supposed to be after Pentecost, but he ended up making an early visit, which was painful. And now as he writes this letter, he speaks of coming to them a third time. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. But here, he's talking about the plan he had thought of in the beginning, at first. Look at verse 16. I wanted to visit you from Ephesus, that's where he was. 
I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. This is the northern part of Greece. In Paul's day, this would have covered places like Berea and Philippi and Thessalonica. So he wanted to go to Corinth on the way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia, visit you again, and have you send me on my way to Judea. The plan, if you remember from 1 Corinthians 16, included taking an offering, taking a collection of money for the church for the poor church in Jerusalem. So not only was this a ministry opportunity for Paul, but it was also an opportunity for the Corinthians to minister to the Christians in Judea. So what was his purpose? To be an instrument of God's grace to them. See, Paul loved the Corinthians, and he was willing to pour himself out in service to them. See, that's what motivated his plan. That's what motivated his plan. And so he asks in verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do you think I made this plan up without giving it serious thought? Do you think that this was a frivolous desire? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The answer is obvious. No, he wanted to minister God's grace to them. Look at the text. Do I make plans according to the flesh? Remember, this was what the the, the false apostles were saying about him, that he was not a spiritual man. Do I make plans ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Now, this was a Jewish cultural way of thinking about responses. <clears throat> the Jews who preferred not to swear by God or take his name on their lips said that since you really can't trust people when they say yes, it's better to say it twice. Yes, yes. To make sure they really mean it when they say yes. Yes, yes. Because there were so many people in that culture who would say yes just to please others and save face, but they really didn't mean it. Hence the importance of the double yes. Not that it fixes the lying heart or guarantees honesty, no, it just pacifies the cultural thinker. It pacifies the cultural thinker. Some of you know what this is like. Some of you are from cultures like this. I'm from a culture that's like this. You know, someone offers you food, you're supposed to say no. Even if you want it. And if the host says, okay, forget about it, then the guest gets offended. No, he's supposed to ask you again and then insist. And then the guest, after being made much of, because you got to make much of the guest, the guest is God, insist. And then after the guest is happy, well, he shouldn't say no. He should say yes. And some evangelicals get so fascinated with this stuff. Oh, it's all so culturally enriching and eye-opening. It's absolute rubbish. I don't care which culture it's from. If you are a Christian, your behavior and your responses in this world are not supposed to be a reflection of your culture. They're supposed to be a reflection of the God you worship. Here's what Jesus said to people in his culture who were trying to find all sorts of creative ways to get people to believe them. This is what Jesus said. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. That's Jesus, not me. Matthew 5, 37. 
If you've got a problem, take it up with him. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You know what that is? Holiness is simplicity. That's what it is. James says the same thing. James, a good student of Jesus. James 5.12, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Somebody in heaven is taking very seriously your words. It matters to them. Don't fall under condemnation. Paul says, when I said that I wanted to come, I did not say one thing, but mean something else. I was not being fickle and unreliable. And here's why. Look at how he demonstrates his reliability. Look at verses 18 to 20. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Did you hear that? The, he grounds the reliability and the trustworthiness of his word in the faithfulness of God himself. Imagine that. I want you to grasp what's going on. You see, Paul knew he had changed his plans. The Corinthians knew he had changed his plans. That's not in question. No one's confused about that. What's being questioned is his character. This man is unreliable. And Paul says, just as God is unchanging and reliable and true, my words and my plans reflect God's faithfulness. That's a big claim. But he takes it one step further. Here's why Paul is confident about that. He doesn't say, look, I'm reliable because look at my track record. Look at my history. Look at all those times when I said I would show up and I did. No, Paul does not boast in himself. He says, our word to you has not been fickle for, look at verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed, whom we preached among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, we all heralded his person and work. We preached the word of the cross, that word concerning him, that word was not yes and no. It was not fickle and half-hearted, but in him it is always yes. It's always unified, true, wholesome, definitive. Why is that? Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. Every promise that was ever spoken by God, Every promise in the Old Testament that looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, every promise made to God's people under the Old Covenant, all of them find their fulfillment, their yes in Jesus. None of them find their fulfillment outside of Him. Friends, Jesus Christ is God's final word. Notice the boldness of Paul's claim. His preached word concerning Christ and his personal word to the Corinthians are inseparable because he is a faithful servant. He is Christ's apostle. This is simply another way of Paul stating what he has already said. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ 
that was preached among the Corinthians was about the historical fulfillment of God's trustworthy promises. Just as God had graciously promised, in response to mankind's sin and rebellion, he entered into our world in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His coming was not dubious. It was not without purpose. It was certainly not in the way that people expected. His way was foolishness to this perishing world. But it was God's way, wasn't it? It was an intentional coming. It wasn't a yes and no at the same time. No, it was a saving yes, a gracious yes, a certain yes, a glorious intervention to save sinners from perishing and to reconcile men and women who were estranged from God. Jesus didn't change his purposes when he was rejected. Rather, he went to the cross and he died in the place of sinners for all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him. All God's promises find their yes in him. That reality should determine how you think of him and how you approach him especially if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian and you're listening to this message for the very first time, and you hear Christians telling you, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. Doesn't matter what religious background you're from. Doesn't matter how bad a person you think you are. But if you're wondering, I wonder what this God will say if I call on him, if I call on him for mercy, if I agree with him that I'm a sinner, will he accept me? Will he forgive me? Will he love me? Friend, I want to tell you that in Christ Jesus, his answer is always yes. So turn from your sins. Call on Christ. Come to God and put your faith in Christ. You know, the Corinthians knew this. They had put their trust in this message. They knew that just as God's word predicted, the Son of God did not stay dead, but he rose from the dead in order to cleanse their consciences from dead works and to give them life everlasting. See, outside of Christ, all these promises seem disorienting, disconnected, scattered, but in him everything makes sense. He is the key to understanding all of the scriptures and he is God's saving yes to your hopeless predicament. See, the Corinthians had received the saving comfort through the apostolic preaching of the cross and resurrection. And Paul's opponents were saying, oh, if he's unreliable with his travel plans, then can he be reliable? Can his message, his gospel be reliable? But Paul's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Paul says, if I was faithful in declaring to you the gospel of the Son of God, who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, do you think, do you think that I would be untrustworthy, fickle in my motives, 
concerning something of lesser significance, like making travel plans. You see, Paul did not change his plans. Get this, he did not change his plans because his purposes changed. Because he was unfaithful to his mission. His plans changed because the Corinthians were unfaithful to him. And yet like his savior, he suffered and ministered reconciling grace to them by writing them, writing them this letter. And he was confident that this would happen because of Christ. Hence he says this, verse 20, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Paul says, because all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ, that is, as he is proclaimed to you through the apostolic word, we, that is the Corinthians and Paul can say, Amen. Yes, may it be so. We agree in him and we agree because of him. You see, God's yes in Christ creates a yes response in Paul and the Corinthians. Through Christ we utter our yes, our amen to God for his glory and in our prayers. What glory? The glory he gets through us because of our response to the apostolic preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this context, this is a reference to our praise and thanksgiving to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. See, because of the Christ that Paul proclaims, these Corinthians should be saying amen, not just to him, but to, to his ministry. Beloved, here's another lesson we can learn from this. You know, while our words are not like Paul's, our words don't carry apostolic weight. While our words are not like his, we who gather here every Sunday in public and utter our amens to our Father through Jesus Christ, we ought to be zealous to make sure our lives and our words conform with the gospel we believe and proclaim. You know, our faithfulness ought to reflect God's faithfulness. Brothers, our lives and words shouldn't cause people to stumble. Everything we do ought to be a reflection of the God we worship and the word of the gospel that we proclaim. When people who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, Paul says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. That's Romans 2, 23 to 24. To Timothy, Paul writes, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Behave in this way. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. 1 Timothy 6, 1. So I wonder what your behavior says about the God of the gospel at your workplace. In his letter to Titus, Paul charges older women to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. Titus 2, 3-5. So that it does not reflect poorly upon the faithful God to who we say amen to through Christ. 
So ladies, does your domestic conduct glorify Christ and his gospel? Or does it mock his word? What does your conscience say? What's the testimony of your conscience concerning this? You see, our words and lives ought not to be contrary to, but in accordance with the gospel of the glory of a faithful God who has reconciled us to himself through his son. So the next time you feel misjudged, consider how you can glorify God, how you can depend on him and his grace as you seek to interact and reconcile with others so that both of you can say a unifying amen in worship. Because here's another thing you can be confident of. In a congregation, in the body of Christ, God's not working on you alone. He's not working on you alone. And that brings us to our third and final point. God's work in Paul's life is inseparable from his work in the lives of the Corinthians. Point number three, Paul's confidence in God's design for his church. Paul's confidence in God's design for his church. Look at verses 21 to 22. And it is God, this faithful God that he represents through his ministry. It is he who establishes us with you in Christ. He makes us stand firm in Christ together, says Paul. The God whose promises find their yes and amen in Christ the God whose gospel we proclaim, this true apostolic word that you heard from us, is about the one who is sustaining and preserving our faith. He's causing us to patiently endure all suffering. He is the one who raises us from despair. Now, why is this important to Paul's overall argument? Because God is doing this through the apostolic word, and if that's the case, then they need him. This validates his ministry to them. They shouldn't be impugning his motives. They should be rejoicing that his word is the means by which their faith is strengthened, by which they are being saved. The apostolic word of Christ may be foolishness to these false apostles, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We know that from 1 Corinthians, don't we? See, the reality of the Corinthian salvation cannot be separated from Paul's apostolic ministry to them. For this God not only establishes them together in Christ, in his church, but he has also done this. Look at the verse. He has anointed us, says Paul. Now, to anoint someone in the Old Testament was to consecrate them for special service, divine service. So kings and priests were anointed. That word Christ means anointed one, the Messiah. And Paul says God has anointed us, both his true apostles and every believer, his children. John says this of all genuine believers, you have been anointed by the Holy One, 1 John 2.20. Not only that, verse 22, and who has also put his seal on us. A seal signifies ownership. In Christ we belong to no one, certainly not those false apostles, no one except God. We are his and all of this is possible because of the design and activity of God himself. Look at the text. And he has given us his spirit in our hearts 
as a guarantee. See, a guarantee is a, a deposit, a down payment of good things to come. Not just for me, but for us. We will enter into glory together. That's the plan. That's the plan. Again, seals, guarantee. These are all commercial metaphors to describe spiritual realities concerning the church of God built on the apostolic word. And again, here's how this contributes to Paul's argument and his confidence. If they receive the spirit through Paul's preaching of Christ, and they certainly had a high view of the spirit, didn't they? A high view of the spirit and his gifts. If God established them with him, if they were anointed and sealed and possessed the indwelling Holy Spirit, and it was all confirmed and established, it all came about through Paul's preaching, then this validates his ministry as a true apostle. This man is trustworthy as the message he preaches, and therefore they can boast in him, just as they could boast in Christ their Savior. See, for the Corinthians, from their conversion to their setting apart for ministry, to that expectation of the coming day of the Lord Jesus, all of it comes through the ministry of Paul's apostolic word. To quote one New Testament scholar, he says, Hence, if they doubt Paul's motives, they will be casting doubt on the reality of their own life in Christ. Now here's what I'd like for us to consider in closing. See, because we live in a day of rampant individualism and self-reliance, we should be careful not to conceive of our Christian lives as fundamentally our own business and to think of the local church, that fellowship of believers that Christ established through the proclamation of the apostolic word as an optional extra. It's my relationship with Jesus' primary church, maybe. Don't conceive of that as an optional extra. Our spiritual lives depend on the church. Our sanctification depends on each other. So rejoice in the church because this is God's design. This is how he works. Just as the Corinthians depended on the work of the Spirit through the word of their apostle, so we must depend on the work of the Spirit through the apostolic word ministered by one another to one another. See, God through his Spirit has gifted each member of the body for the express purpose of spiritually building one another up. So pastors need their members for their endurance and comfort. Just as much as members need their pastors for equipping and counsel and correction. Beloved, let us, by the grace of God, with great confidence in His faithfulness and by faith in His word, strive to live lives of simplicity and godly sincerity. You should expect this. You should expect this from your pastors, that we will not say one thing to you, but mean another. You should hold us up to that standard. If I think you're doing well spiritually, I will tell you to your face. If I think you're not doing well spiritually, I will tell you because I love you. 
I have no desire to impress you. I want you to be impressed with Jesus. And as your elders, we want this and we expect this from you too. That we can take you at your word. Brothers, this is a biblical truth that ought to inform our consciences. We ought to live lives of integrity in accordance with the God we worship and the message we proclaim. And we do it all by the power of the gospel of grace, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus, by putting off empty and deceptive words and pursuing simplicity so that together with one voice in corporate worship, through Jesus Christ, we can utter our amen to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for his cross. We thank you for the power of his spirit indwelling in us. Lord, we pray that we would depend on your grace every day. Help us to live lives of simplicity and, and godly sincerity as we trust in the gospel. Oh Lord, be glorified in each of our lives, even as we minister to one another. When things are going well and when things are not going well, we pray that we would strive for purity that we would be zealous for good works, those works that you have prepared for us to do. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would be glorified through your church. In Jesus' name we pray.